On one side of Bedford Road, an empty lot borders the pillar of the disused railway bridge, which overground trains no longer traverse. It is an undisturbed patch of wild in the London landscape, where the weeds and lone sapling that grow out of the concrete collect the kind of human detritus that suggests middle-of-the-night violence and tawdry under-the-train-tracks activity. A single football shoe, an overturned traffic cone, a soggy notebook, a child's sock, one half of a broken scissor, an empty bottle of supermarket gin, an invisible space that most people do not see when they walk by, consumed with their phones and getting to work on time. Although once in a while, if they drop their keys or need to tie a shoelace, and they stop on the pavement bordering the lot, they look up and wonder what kind of personal calamity could have caused one sleeve of a red leather jacket to end up here, wrapped around a crushed plastic bottle of bleach. When the building next to the lot is gutted in the fire, no one is hurt, except for the lady who dies. The new owner of the empty lot and the burnt-out building learns of her death as he twists the gold band on the ring finger of his left hand in a way that is the opposite of nervous. He understands that death is often the collateral damage of business. But despite the ease with violence that he wears under his Savile Row tailoring, he is not without compassion. He offers the dead woman's sister, with whom she had lived for many years, a studio flat on the third floor of the new building that he erects next to the railway bridge. Through his agent, he offers a very reduced rent, astonishingly low for the area and the quality of the new flats. And the old woman accepts it, despite having to climb an additional flight of stairs to reach her new home, where she will now live alone. The building is hurriedly built and shabbily constructed, but inside the flats are clean, functional and modern, fitted with cheap but nice-looking stainless steel appliances, bathrooms with glass shower doors that do not quite meet each other when closed, and shiny plastic granite-effect countertops. Three floors, three flats per floor. Two flats, A and B, on one side of a central corridor. They each have windows overlooking the old railway tracks along one wall. Each A is a two-bed flat, with a window in the kitchen that looks out on a small patch of struggling grass at the back of the building. Next door to each A is B, a studio flat, with a window facing Bedford Road. Across the corridor from the two beds and studios, there are larger flats, the C's. The C's have three bedrooms. The master bedroom in each has an ensuite bathroom, and there is a large family bathroom across from the modern, open-plan kitchen-slash-dining-slash-living-room. The absence of walls is meant to convey a sense of space, but somehow does not. Lives are lived in buildings like this one, but no one notices. The tenants go to work, they come home, they do not ask questions about their neighbours, they do not want to get involved. They do not inquire about the jobs, the children, the tragedies or the triumphs of the people in the flat next door. They see each other only in passing in the corridor. They do not look at one another. It is not polite to meet each other's eyes. 
and so the tenants do not realise that the owner of the building lives with his family on the second floor in flats 2A and 2B. He knocked down the walls between the flats to make a large apartment. The tenants do not notice that different people come in and out of flat 2C and that there is no regular occupant there. The people in this building do not visit the second floor because they do not live there, so they do not see anything unusual. And even if they did, they would pretend not to. When something breaks, they call the property manager and he deals with it. That is all the tenants know about the building, the mobile number of the property manager. And that is enough.